For those of you who were here last week, you'll know we talked about this idea that community has practical value. There's a practical value for being in community with people. We said that several weeks ago when we talked about the idea of community is preventative uh, as opposed to reactive, right? Oftentimes, uh, community is like retirement. You can't really start saving when you need it. You got to do it beforehand. And, And all of us need community. We just sometimes forget about it until we actually need it. And so, Getting involved in community has practical value. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to actually see the benefits of being in community with having a friendship, with having real people come alongside you who know you and then allow you 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 to know them. But community, remember this is not a TED Talk, so we're church gathered. We believe in Jesus. We're not just going to talk about things that improve your life. We actually believe that community has a spiritual value. And the primary focus of, as we call it, discipleship in community is sharing Jesus, sharing Jesus in us and through us, who is alive at work in us and through us. That's the primary focus. And then we said, what makes a church is what? Now, I know some of you have seen the old, remember the old, uh, you know, here's church, here's steeple, open the doors and what? Here are the people, right? Sometimes we think like, what's the church? The church is the people. Well, that's true. But at the end of the day, what makes us a church just in case you wondered, is actually God. It's what he has done and is doing and promises to do. And then, because of what he's done, us existing for the mission of God in the world. Because listen, there are people all over the world who gather together and call themselves a church in the name of God. But if you were to compare it to the scriptures, they're not a church. And I don't mean anything mean. It's just they don't look like the church And so what makes a church a church, first and foremost, is God, what he has done, what he is doing, what he promises to do, and the people who trust in God, who submit to God, and are living life according to his purpose. That's what makes a church a church. And if you want to draw near to God, here's the thing. If you want to draw near to God, you can't do it without a community. This is the first command as we looked at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is a great passage of scripture as we talked about last week about understanding the need for community as discipleship. And the power of community is that a person comes to truly know the gospel and gain confidence in speaking the gospel really through community. All of scripture was written to a community. And so the power of understanding the scripture is when you look into it and you experience it in community. Well, does that mean like, you know, are you saying, Phil, I can't, I can't get anything out of personally reading my Bible? Like, no, no, no. There's a lot you can gain, but if you want to understand, like there's just certain aspects of the Bible you don't get that you just don't understand. Like there, I can, I can read Elizabeth Barrett Browning's, you know, how do I love thee? Let me count thy ways. I love you with the death and breath and height. My soul can reach and feel like out of sight for the end of being an isle of grace. I love thee. I remember that poem back in middle school. I still remember it. But I can, I can recite that poem, but I've, I've never been in love. Do I know what love is? No. And so the same is true with scripture. And we'll talk about how our communities practically help us understand who God is and Help us live on mission, which is the purpose of this series today, of the series this past month, living on mission together. We'll do that in just a moment. But for now, what you need to know from our study of Hebrews 10 last week is that one of the major rhythms that communities as discipleship or discipleship and community practice is learning and speaking the gospel with others. I get the honor every week to 
hopefully, (laughs) I speak the gospel each week. But where do you get to speak the gospel? Where do you get to speak it? And the community, our communities is where that happens. And while we are very intentional in never calling our communities Bible studies, because honestly, that's really just a too small of a way to define what life in community means, our communities are centered on the Bible, on the gospel. Now, if you want to mature as a disciple of Jesus, then you and I need to be a part of the let us. That's what we were talking about in Hebrews 10. Let us. We'll look at this in just a second. And we need to stop leaning like some people do. Maybe you have. I know I have. Stop leaning on the let me mentality of pursuing a mature faith in Christ that honestly is more self-centered and based on the morals and ideals of this individualistic society that would want us to believe that at the end of the day, life is about me. (laughs) But if you love and follow Jesus, you know that's not true. And so, as I said last week, we cannot deny the scripture teaches us that discipleship cannot be divorced from community. And that's the point. So, that was the synopsis. That was last week. And I want to pick up where we left off looking at this final let us command in Hebrews chapter 10. And then I'd like to actually take some time to talk about what you can expect from a clarity community. Some of you have never been part of a community. So what I'm literally going to do is I'm going to just walk you through what you can expect from a community. Because some of you have been part of communities in a number of different churches. And if I've been to a lot of different churches. I was born in a Catholic church, grew up in a Church of the Brethren, which is like uh, Mennonites with regular clothes. And then I was, uh, my parents went to an Assemblies of God church. And then I served at a Calvary Chapel. And then I became a free church pastor. And then now I'm a Baptist preacher. So I, I get it. There's a lot of different kinds of churches. And it all, community and all those different environments look different. They look different. If you haven't been in a lot of different churches, you should know. By the way, if you went to like one or two churches and got burnt and you think all churches stink, just go to another one. There's going to be a good one. A lot of them are different. It's it's actually funny. But anyways, uh, I'm going to walk you through what that looks like for us so you can get a guy to sense so you don't walk in like, I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to, you know, start taking off their shoes and everybody starts ho-humming, kumbaya. I don't know how they're going to know. We only do that every fourth time we gather. I'm teasing. We don't do that at all. Uh, So we'll talk about that. But Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, I want to take a look at uh, where we left off in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, let's actually just start at verse 22, the first let us, and then our passage for today really is centered on where we left off, which is 24 and 25, but just so we can kind of get a sense, like, where did you get all this information you just talked about as a recap? It's really from 11 all the way down, but let's start with the first let us, verse 22, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. And here's the second one. Let what? us, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And then here is our passage for today, verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to provoke one another, to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Father in heaven, I pray in the next few moments that uh, I I put some words together that I think might be helpful 
in, in helping us understand how this practically works out for us. But I pray, most of all, that your word, which is living and active, would find its way by your Holy Spirit to just speak to us in the way that each of us needs to respond. And I hope I can just get out of the way. And so I pray that your word would take root in our hearts and give us the courage to actually do what it says. In your name I pray. Amen. Here the writer of Hebrews tells us that an evidence of community as discipleship is the production of love and good works. Let us, therefore, what? Spur each other on, as some translations say. Here it says provoke love and good works. Now the question is, I want to maybe take a look at it from a a different angle, because that's just how my mind works. I I, I always view things in a different way, which is part of the problem of maybe why I don't have many friends. But anyways, that's that's, that's fine. Uh, I I always look at things at at an angle. Here we have a, a passage of Scripture that tells us what we are to do and what happens when we do what we're supposed to do. But sometimes we don't ask the question, what gets in the way of us doing what we're supposed to do? Like, what gets in the way of being the kind of community that produces love and good works. I think it's actually found here. The writer of Hebrews tells us that falling into the habit of neglecting to gather, this is what the second verse means. Neglecting to gather, and in this context, the writer was literally writing to a local church, and he was saying, neglecting to gather with your church family as a habit works against producing love and good works within a local church. If you're wondering why the church doesn't look like the church, it's because, and it's, it's like a double-edged sword. People don't gather because they're bitter at the church, but actually what causes the church to be continually the source of bitterness is the church not gathering. It's like a catch-22. And so neglecting to be in community with others, it actually prohibits the church from looking like the church. But it not only prohibits the church from looking like the church, according to our passage, When those who are saved by God into community make it a habit to neglect to gather, it just doesn't prevent God's best for a local church. It actually, it actually hurts a local church. I mean, take a look at this, what it says here. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, there is... Uh, end time language there, which leads, it may be in the first understanding you don't really understand it, but uh, one Bible scholar who writes a commentary on this, more letters behind his name than I have, writes this about this passage and the, the idea of the command to not neglect and to love and good works and this idea till the day we see God approaching. He says this in light of all this together and how the language works. He says this, in these verses, the author takes up a theme he has already hinted at. And this is in the previous verses that we talked about last week. The danger that some within the group might lose their commitment and thus endanger the others. In other words, there's this slippery slope that ends up happening that my inability, maybe because I'm lazy, maybe because I just want to do what's, you know, I feel my inability to come through on the commitments of what it means to be part of the local church. Yes, I get that it might hurt me, but for the most part, and I think it's the society we live in, right? Because like 
well, you know, what I do is what I do, you know, and what you do is you do, and, you know, I, I, I can do what I do, and it doesn't hurt you. But the scripture here tells us that everything works together, and your inability to gather and my inability to gather, actually, it can endanger the community. Which, of course, begs the question, when people choose not to obey God's word regarding community, then what are the things a local church becomes endangered to, right? So that's the big question. Like, well, like what is the danger? What is the danger? And I'm, I know I'm going on the super negative here, but just, just roll with me for a second. I think answering this question, uh, the best example of this is actually looking to the positive. Like, what, what things happen when a church looks like its best? And this is the reason why I had you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 last week, and we took a look at it. And I just want to read this passage again. This is so good. If you want to know what the church looks like at its best, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, tells us what the church looks like in its best. It says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Really here, a little synopsis, he's setting up leadership, and he's talking about the different uh, giving of special administrative gifts within the church and spiritual. And then verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so when a church looks like a church, people are working in ministry. They're doing the work of ministry. 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Verse 14, then we will be no longer like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow into every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. You know, when I was in Bible school, we, the professors would always point to this passage of Scripture like, this is what a healthy church looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And if you want to know what a healthy church looks like, this is what it looks like. People understanding their giftings and their callings and working on that. Some are pastors, some are teachers. Not everyone is. And there's a, there's a type of submission that, uh, that people give to one another, working together at the end of the day so that all of us are engaged in ministry. And therefore, and therefore, moving towards maturity. And growing in faith. That's what a great... Don't you want our church to look like it? Don't you want your life to look like it? Don't you want your kid's life to look like that inside of their church that they call home? I do. And if a church working together in community as it should produces unity, which is one of the things that we see here, then a church where people do not practice engaging in community as disciples is a church in danger of a lack of unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son. With the current pandemic, it's no surprise that churches all over the world, even as I get together with other pastors, 
Like, why is everybody so divided? Why are we so fighting each other? I'll tell you why. Because when we neglect the gathering, and I'm not trying to make a political statement about gathering, but here's the natural thing that happens. When we don't gather, and there's social reasons and um, you know, the social reasons of what happens when people don't connect with one another individually. But the spiritual side of it, when we don't gather, something happens. And I think the evil one has the ability to take root and draw lines between us. And there's a lack of unity. And wherever is a lack of unity, people do not experience the fullness of Christ, who, by the way, is one with the Father and the Spirit as we are to be one with each other. And if church working together as it should produces maturity, right, this is what Ephesians says, if we do all this, then we are mature, no longer like what? Little children. If a church together in community produces maturity, well then a church where people do not practice and engage in community, that church is a church in danger of immaturity in beliefs and behaviors Beliefs and behaviors. We've talked about this in the past. We, we know that our belief influences ultimately our behaviors. And a church working together in community, according to the scripture here, if they believe in Christ, who is truth, who is love, guess what is produced from them? Truth in love. It just makes sense, right? What God, as we've said this in the past, what God does to us, he intends, he intends to do what? Through us. That's a, that's a gospel truth we understand. Whatever God does to us, he intends to do through us. God forgiven us much, so therefore we should what? Forgive much. God forgave us while we were yet his enemy, so therefore we should what? Forgive our enemies. Right? So this is something, the Christian ethic is all based, not necessarily on what we think is the right thing to do to keep good friendships, but it's based upon what God has done to us. This is what makes us distinct. We are not just enlightened people. We are people inspired by the truth of God. And where a church does not practice engaging in face-to-face community, here's what happens. Eventually becomes a church filled with people void of accountability. What kind of accountability? Well, the kind of accountability that genuine relationships bring. You know what I'm talking about. The kind of, there's things that you say to people that to their face, and then there are things that you say when they're not in front of you, right? We all know, right? We all know. And the more you're not within that genuine face-to-face relationship, you start practicing the habit of saying things that you would never say if you were face-to-face with people. And this is what a church who does not practice community looks like. They believe that they're allowed to say what they think and what they think outside of the accountability of relationships. And sooner or later, what should be truth in love actually looks like truthfulness without love. And it sounds like this. Well, I'm just being real. We see this today more than ever because of the social buffer of technology and social media. Now, I'm not hating technology and social media. I mean, at its core, theologically speaking, technology and social media is agnostic. It doesn't, it cannot be saved, nor, nor right? It's, it's agnostic, right? But, but we should talk about this because this is the world we live in, right? I mean, I'm constantly amazed at 
what people say and do over social media. <laughs> that is obviously either a cry for attention or an outflow of a lack of courage to say what actually needs to be said to a person. To a person. To a person. In fact, you don't have to be a theologian to know this. Dr. Sherry Turkle, professor of social studies of science and technology in the program in science and technology at uh, MIT. She writes this fascinating book, which uh, I recommend. She's not a Christian, but just she writes this book based on her studies of the effect of social media and, and social interactions. It's a book called Alone Together. And she writes about her research, and she says this. It's just interesting to see what she has written. She says this, we feel connected but disconnected at the same time. Isn't that true? Like, like I can sort of talk to my friends on social media and I feel like I connect with them, but after I say my, send my few messages, I'm like, oh, I wish I could see them. So we feel connected but disconnected at the same time. Technology, pro- listen to this, technology proposes itself as the architect of our intimacies. I like how she put that. Technology is seductive when, it, when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. In other words, technology helps us feel our most, accent, most authentic self <laughs> sometimes. As it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely, but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections and the social robot may offer the illusion of companionship with the demands, without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. Or as the one theologian says, we don't even talk anymore. We don't talk anymore. No, she's not a theologian. I'm just talking. Just joking. The point is that whenever a local church stops acting like the family of God, then that fellowship of believers stops growing. That's the point. Okay? All that, all that preaching, getting off on tangent is this. Whenever we don't gather in community, we, we really stop being the church. We stop growing. This is because people who should be busy learning to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus as master and savior, become too busy being consumers and consultants of the church instead of contributors and co-laborers. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The opposite. The opposite is even better news. Because according to Ephesians 4, when you and I choose to increasingly grow in Christ-like community with each other, you and I are committing to deeply engaging in being part of accomplishing God's desire to build up, to mature, and to empower His church to accomplish His mission in the world. When we choose to do that, then God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Okay, that's the preaching. <laughs> so, so what does this really look like, Phil? Like, like what is that? Okay, right, I, I get that. Yeah, that's, that's what the script... Like, so how, how does this work here? I, I want to um, maybe cast that vision. Because it looks different everywhere, but 
You just want to know what it looks like here. And so I just want to talk about a few of the goals that we've set for our communities. The first goal of our gathering as communities is this. It's really simple. It's just to remind each other of our true identity and mission in Christ. I love something that uh, a pastor uh, wrote, um, Hugh Halter. I'm a big fan of his, his, his writings. and I don't agree with everything he talks about, but I mean, he... He is a pragmatist of leading people who are far from God to Jesus, and I'm a fan of that. But he writes this. He said, Christians often make it sound like Jesus came only to die for sin and then make converts. Grow a religion called Christianity and make more converts. But God never wanted converts, church attenders, prisoners, or parishioners. He wanted his family back. Learning to live life, all of life like Jesus, is not about conversion. It's about adoption. We are a part of his body, members of God's household, bride, groom. This understanding is so important because if you miss it, you'll head out your door in the name of Jesus and make prisoners... Instead of priests, converts instead of cousins, and Pharisees instead of family members. That's good writing. Wish it was mine. (laughs) So then what is it we remind each other of? Well, we remind each other that in here, I talk about in here as our gap, like community gathering, in here is for out there. Everyone say that. In here. It's for out there. In here, it's for out there. Okay, we're not a repeating church. That's okay. In here is for out there. It's easy to focus on ourselves in community and forget about the mission of God out there. This means that every time we gather, we hold each other accountable to make sure that what we do in community in here prepares us and empowers us to join Jesus out there on his mission. I'll talk about it in a second, how we actually make that happen. But so we remind each other that in here is for out there. Second, third, we, we commit to learning to listen well and ask good questions. In other words, we want to grow in emotional and social health, right? Some of us need to grow up emotionally. Some of you need to learn how to make friends, talk to people. There's certain things you probably shouldn't say that maybe in your circles of influence you've been allowed to say and then you wonder why people get offended Well, maybe because you're not supposed to say it or you approach friendships in a certain way and only certain kinds of people are friends with you and you're wondering like other people aren't. Maybe it's wrong with them. Well, maybe you're wrong. Like we have to learn these things, right? Like and it's difficult, but that's what we do. We listen well. We ask good questions. We grow in emotional and social health in a diverse community with other disciples of Jesus so we can grow, here's the point, so we can grow connecting naturally in friendship with people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, that are far from God. So if we want to actually be witnesses in the world and build relationships with people far from God, we learn to do it in a petri dish of diversity that happens to be a place where we actually have something in common. We love Jesus. (laughs) And there should be lots of forgiveness, right? So that's where we learn it. This means for learning to resist the urge to make every conversation about me or taking everything said to me personally. Oh my God, I can't believe they said that to me. 
in an unhealthy manner. This means learning to embrace the awkwardness of growing relationships. Should I call? Did they call? Why did they text me? They left me on red. I don't know. Maybe I should call back. I don't know. Maybe they're like, oh, they're a little older. Maybe they're like, like, like all the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the awkwardness of, of, of growing in a relationship with people. Like, can we invite them to have vacation with us? Oh, honey, I don't know if we're at there yet. We can't really vacation with that family yet. We haven't, like, but we know it should grow. And really, just to posture ourselves with the kind of humility that says, look, I don't have anything figured out, but I know God does. This means loving and accepting people who may have different preferences, opinions, even political views. I said it. But are pursuing a growing love and commitment for the same Jesus as you do. I just got to warn you. If I say that to you and you feel so, like you feel like your politics are tied directly to the ethic of Jesus, that you can't rationalize someone loving Jesus with a different political view than you, you are in danger. I just, I just want to encourage you. You're just flirting with bad theology. Okay? You are... That, because it's not tied to the kingdoms of this world. We are a royal priesthood who finds our citizenship in heaven. Okay? Just, I just want to let you know that. And so we, we love and accept these kind of people who are pursuing a growing love in faith in Jesus, same Jesus as you do. And then here's, here's the other thing we commit to do. We commit to speaking the gospel to each other regularly, naturally, and effectively, so we can understand and be prepared to share the truths of the gospel with those who are not yet part of the family of God. You're already catching this little key thing. We do in community what we're trying to do really well outside of community. Community is the petri dish where we learn to be missionaries. This means we don't just give good advice when we hear people talk about their troubles or offer words of encouragement when someone is going through a tough time. We do that, but we also practice learning how to speak the gospel truth into each other's lives in ways that feels natural and appropriate to the conversation and doesn't feel like someone trying to make everything a religious illustration, right? You know what I'm talking about. you got to give appropriate gospel truth. You can't just be like, oh, today I lost my keys. Well, you better find the keys to heaven. You know, like, you know, like, okay, that's, I see what you're doing there, but that is not really helpful, okay? Does <laughs> it sound spiritual? That's not really helpful. To help you understand how this practically works, you should see a bookmark on your seat that our communities have used for years. Now, if you've been in community, you're like, this is a lot nicer, it's a lot different. Yeah, I, the first one we did was like really thin and it got really torn up and then it was small. We could barely read it, so I made the words a little bit bigger. But you'll see this bookmark on your seat and... This is not the only way, but this is one of the ways. This is something that we kind of bounce back to when sometimes we're not doing discussion guides or something. And, and, and you don't have to do this, but this is something that we teach our leaders to embrace. We, we try to help them. Uh, and, and, and these are five questions that help us create goals and evaluate our personal and corporate pursuit of living on mission. And it's not new to us. This is something that I, I got from an, another pastor um, that has really succeeded at helping his church in the suburban setting. He's actually from like the St. Paul area, helping them live on mission. So I just borrow, 
I don't make anything up. I'm not that smart. But I try to find some really good things that are helping people in our context learn and follow Jesus. And so we've taken this, we adopted this several years ago. And these questions um, help us evaluate where we're, where, we're, where we're at missionally and personally. But these questions also carry assumptions with it that keep us accountable to discipleship rhythms. And, and without explaining it a little more, let's, just, let's dive into this and, and I'll explain it. So the first question is this, how did you see God at work in your life this week? Uh, when you ask a kind of question like this, the assumption is that what? You are actually looking for how God was at work in your life this week. And this, don't answer this out loud, but how many of you in this week could point out how God actually showed up? Some of you might be like, oh, shoot, okay. Um, the goal of communities is to help you get to that answer faster. Because we know, well, let me just ask you, is God at work right now? Okay. We just don't see it. Sometimes we don't have the eyes to see. We want to be people who see what God is doing. And this not only allows us to give testimony to what God is up to, but it teaches us to be the kind of people who believe that God is at work and that God is asking us to join him in his mission to bring the realities of the kingdom into every place we go with everyone we meet. As we grow in seeing God at work, our answers to this question should grow from, you know, uh, God is good. Someone paid for my coffee at Starbucks this week. It should go from that. It should go from like, you know, God's good. I got a parking spot at the mall. It should go from, I got Starbucks for free to maybe something like this. I've used this illustration many times. It should go from something like that. That's not bad. It should go from that to, you know, God is so good. He taught me that I still have room to grow in grace and showing generosity because, man, this week I went to Starbucks and I got coffee for free and immediately I was overcome by guilt and I felt pressured to buy coffee for the person behind me instead of gratitude that would result in me giving to others what was already given to me. Man, isn't that funny? And God showed me that I have a lot to learn about grace and generosity still. See, that's different than just saying, God showed up, I got coffee for free. In other words, we practice proclaiming the truths of the gospel by recognizing how God shows up in the everyday rhythms of his lives. We see his attributes, we see his character. That's different than what just God does. Second question, what has God been teaching you in his word? The assumption here is what? That we are people who do what? We read God's word. Spend time in the scriptures. And asking this question allows us to learn, listen, how God's word is living and active in the everyday rhythms of people's lives. See, this is why community is so important. Because sometimes we read the word and it helps us, but then there's a lot of times we read the word, especially when we're like in the book of Leviticus and we're just like, what? Uh, you know, and we're like, how does this apply to my everyday life? But the, the, the primary way you get to experience the realities of the fullness of the scripture coming alive is actually when someone else comes to you and say, oh, today I was opening my phone and I saw the verse on the Bible app and it was, I needed that today. 
and God, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I guess the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrows, right? It is effective. I see it. It's helpful. And if we only read it ourselves, sometimes you don't see that. And this question allows us to learn how God's word is living and active in the everyday rhythms of everyday, every other people's lives. And, and it holds us accountable to the discipleship commitment of being someone who's regularly choosing to hear from God through his word. Because it only takes a few times of you saying, oh, God didn't really say anything to me this week because I was kind of busy, for you to go, all right, this week, I gotta sh- <laughs> I've got already done it four times. I probably should have something that I contribute Right? It's just, it's just the natural accountability of it. Third, what kind, this is a really important one. What kind of conversations are you having with those who are disconnected from God? The assumption here is that we are all people building relationships with people who are disconnected from God in our circles of influence. Not primarily because we want to see them converted, but because God has literally sent us into the places we are planted to be missionaries of the gospel and demonstrators of the reality of the kingdom of God. You might not like where you live. You might not like your job. You might wish you lived here. You might wish you worked there. You might wish you worked. I don't know where you are at. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the scripture tells us that God has preordained before even the earth, the times and the places where you are at right now what if, how would it change things if you realize that every day you wake up, the place you're at, no matter how hard it is or how much discontent you are with what it is or how much you believe God wants more for you? What if that place was God's ordained place for you? Not only just to be and to make it through and just trust him in the meantime until he takes you somewhere better, but what if God was calling you right there Because he wants you to be the light. He wants you to explode the realities of the kingdom of God in that place with those people. Like, what if God has actually sent you on mission? What if you were the change that God wants to bring? What if you are the light that he has set up? A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. By the way, you are. You are. So we love like Jesus loved, who even while we were still sinners and knowing that everyone would not choose to follow him, he still gave up his life so that everyone could be given a chance to experience the love of God the Father. We live like Jesus lived, who as in Luke 2.52 tells us, spent 30 years, even before starting his earthly ministry. Some of you have been saved for 20 years and you feel like, I've been saved for 20 years and God's not done anything through me. It's cool. Jesus waited 30. You got time? Be patient. God is faithful. But Jesus didn't waste his time. What did he do? The scripture tells us he grew in stature and favor with both God and man. He lived like Jesus. Well, because he was. And he gained favor with God. I mean, he grew in reputation with those. So that when he started the ministry that God was going to accomplish through him, the foundation was already set. Fourth, I know we're going to go there. What good can we do around here? Listen, the assumption here is that we're people who are actually doing good to the, you know, who are doing really their best to live out 
the many two New Testament commands for, for disciples of Jesus to do good, right? Hebrews 10, 24, 25, verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and what? Good works. Like, that's actually a thing. We actually should do some good things. And so whether it's all of us coming together to help someone who just lost their job buy a new washer because theirs just went out. That's something that happened. Uh, you know, one of our people that lost a washer and they didn't have a job and a community got together and bought a new washer. That's a lot of money for one person to pitch in. But when you got a community of like 20 people, that's not very much big ask. And we can be a huge blessing because how many of you have ever walked around in stinky clothes, right? I mean, we could be a blessing and we'd have done that. Or maybe you're, you're hoping host pasta parties for high school soccer teams that I happen to be coaching. Listen, this is what we do. We ask, what good can we do around here? And then last but not least, verse, uh, not verse, uh, question number five, how can we come alongside of you in prayer? The assumption is that we're people who do what? We pray. That we're in regular connection with God the Father and people in regular dependence of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is a posture that says, I want to connect with you, Father, and I also need you so much. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Forgive those who sin against us. These are the things that we pray because we have a dependence on God. We have a dependence on God. Pastor Ben, pastor of Northridge Church in Rogers, uh, which was one of the churches that helped us start in 2013, he has a saying that everyone who calls him pastor is all too familiar with. He says this, he goes, nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. Nothing of eternal significance never happens apart from prayer. And we believe the ministry of prayer. However, we also know that not everyone is comfortable with or knows how to minister to other in prayer. So asking this question every time we gather allows us to create an environment where those dedicated to growing as disciples of Jesus who don't really feel comfortable praying in public can learn to practice the ministry of prayer. You practice prayer in community so that when an opportunity for someone out there needs it, you're prepared. Why? Because you've been practicing it in here. The church could use more people who are all all more comfortable and can do it authentically. Prayer out there. The world needs more of those kinds of people. In fact, some of the believers that you admire the most are the kind who can just seem to pray with someone in public and it doesn't seem too holier than thou and it doesn't seem awkward. It's like, how are they just able to pray with someone right there? I'll tell you how. They practiced. And our communities, our environments, to practice the ministry of prayer. Listen, I want everyone to be in community because of the practical benefits it gives to a person's life. But I especially want everyone who considers themselves a part of this local church to be in community because in community is how we grow as disciples and make disciples. Listen, I've been doing this for on eight years I'm just real. I'm not that great of a preacher to explode your spiritual life into full discipleship, maybe like some of the all-star pastors can do in these big churches. We need communities. I need you to be in community so that every one of us working together, doing our part, is the church. 
That's how we will grow in maturity. And that's how the Lord will add to our number daily as those being saved. At the end of the day, for us as followers of Jesus, He is our focus. And He is our mission. If we want to know Jesus more, and if we want to help the world know Jesus more, you you want to know Jesus more? You want the world to know Jesus more? Listen, we need to be putting into practice what Jesus said when he taught this in John 13, 34 to 35. I give you a new command. Love one another. If that wasn't hard enough, Jesus says, do it just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. That's crazy, Jesus. Yeah, that's why he said this in verse 35. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another.